Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Now today, I'm really excited to welcome my next guest, Tony Kyniston. I was introduced to Tony by a fellow podcaster, Cameron Riley, who thought that I may like to talk with Tony on this podcast. Now, Tony's a refugee from the corporate world who turned to share investment, and Cameron is a podcaster who is seeking to learn about investing in the share market at the feet of a master. Their podcast is called QAV Podcast, and this is where Tony explains the system that he's developed over the years for trading in the share market. Actually, not trading, investing, isn't investing, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. G'day, Tony. How's it going? <laughs> Sorry, I, was, I, got, I got, got caught up in the script rather than talking directly to you. You can find out everything you may want to know about the QAV methodology and about Tony by listening. I'll put all the links in the blog post and the episode notes. We would just take up way too much time trying to cover everything here today. So we're going to do a general overview. And I wanted to cover some of Tony's general principles about share investing. He's a quiet achiever. His portfolio has shown an average rate of return of 19.5% per annum for 20 years. This is double the return of the ASX. He's got a checklist that helps him determine the shares that he'll invest in, and this is based on publicly available knowledge from company data and places like online tools like Yahoo Finance, with a little help from some subscription services as well. G'day, Tony. Hi, <laughs> We'll say g'day again. Yeah. <laughs> that's such a long intro. I didn't realise it was going to be such a long intro. <laughs> anyway, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for today. <laughs> You started off in your share investing journey by finding out about Warren Buffett, and we've talked about Warren many times on right. this um, on this podcast. He seems to come up all the time. Yeah. But you were reading his newsletters and books, and uh, tell us about what you took away from them. Yeah, well, this was back in the mid-'80s when I first came across Warren, and I didn't know much about investing then at all. And and that's a kind of ironic thing in itself because I was working in, in big corporate, and uh, you'd, you'd think someone – working for a big corporate would know a little about <laughs> how to value a company and how to invest. And we do, I suppose, uh, in the very niche field we were in, but not generally. And what happened was we, we were given um, a loan, an investment loan, or we had the option of taking out an investment loan as part of our salary package. And a couple of guys like me, being the young Turks we did, went in boots and all, borrowed. And, and I spent about a year listening to stock tips and investing in specky mining companies and specky oil companies and after about a year i think i'd lost half the money and it was borrowed too so i had no way of paying it back so and you were just taking people's tips were you yeah yeah i mean that's how we all did it we go for a cup of coffee and we'd say oh have you heard about this one and have you heard about that one and this one's gone up 100 percent. what do you think and and yeah we had a few mates who were stockbrokers who'd feed us tips and it just didn't work out and so i sort of said to myself gee i've got to learn something about investing so I started to try and read everything I could. I'd go to the bookshop and pull out books, and a lot of it didn't make sense. A lot of it was focused on the American market. A lot of it was very historical, like going back to the crash of 29 and things like that. But then I read a book called The Making of an American Capitalist, uh, which is Buffett's unauthorized biography, and it just the penny just dropped and the, the light went on. Here was someone who 
explain very in very clear terms how to value your company, how you should approach the market, basically how to invest. And uh, so I started reading all I could about Buffett. And my takeaways um, were around basically valuing companies and and how to decide when and if to buy or sell in a company. Not timing the market so much, because um, one of the things that Buffett tells you is it's, you know, stay in the market for as long as you can and and buffett has this great way of of talking and teaching he speaks in very simple folksy styles so that also i guess resonated with me as well he's a, he's a nebraskan isn't he he is yeah, yeah. the, I the a, sage of omaha i believe sage it's of omaha. i actually yeah. went across to uh, omaha to go to his agm at the 50th meeting about three or four years ago and uh, it was just fantastic it's a it's a, a little a little town and, and america's a funny place in that the, once you get outside the big population centres, it's really like driving through North Queensland or driving through outback New South Wales or wherever. It's it's lots of smallish towns, and I'm not sure what the what the population of Nebraska is, but of Omaha, sorry, but it's probably around a hundred thousand, fifty to a hundred thousand. So it's a really small place. And Warren says, you know, you're better off being in a town like this than part of Wall Street, where you like we were before before I found Warren Buffett trading on tips and talking with people in the industry and, and thinking you have inside knowledge when you don't. So that gives you some objectivity. So that's also helped being a share trader in Australia as well and not being part of the of the pack. It, it allows you to stand back and, and, and watch so that, that's So that's a bit like being in um, the big end of town where this all uh, kind of concentrates in the financial does, yeah. parts of uh, the industry. I think before the internet got so widespread, access to information was was very manual and very, and therefore you did have to have an intermediary in the way and, and Buffett did this he used to get the the annual reports in hard copy and pour over them at night and go through the figures in his head or or work them out with a pen and paper um, but these days all the information's at your fingertips and you can do your own analysis so my my prophecy for the future of the of the industry is that margins are going to be disintermediated away more and more uh, you're starting to see that, I guess, with um, ETFs and index funds and industry super funds and things like that. They're dragging the margins down, but that's just going to keep going, I think. Getting back to Warren Buffett, what was his AGM like? Oh, the AGM was great. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's got so, lots of disciples, really, he hasn't does, he? Yeah. yeah. So it's held in the, in the I think it's the basketball stadium, but anyway, the big stadium, sports stadium in, in uh, Omaha. And people come from all over the United oh, States all, and all over, over the, the world. world. Yeah. yeah. I jumped in a, in a taxi to go back to my hotel with two guys from Bendigo, so it was... You know, funny being over in Omaha and, and catching up with Australians, but yeah, all over the world. I think it seats something like fifty thousand in this in this um, uh, sports stadium, and you queue up at about four in the morning, uh, and and there's lots of entertainment going on. Someone drives a team of long longhorn cattle along the main street, and there's bagpipers and all that kind of stuff. And because these are all companies that are sort of associated with with the Buffett Empire. And uh, and then like at about six thirty or seven o'clock, the doors get thrown open. And everyone rushes in to get a good seat, and it's it's after that it's pretty relaxed. You can leave a leave a, you can you know place your jumper on the seat or whatever and mark, and mark it, and it'll be there when you get back. But um, next door to the sports stadium is like a big exhibition building where they where they hold conventions and things like that, and that's completely full of Buffett companies selling merchant merchandise. So there's a there's bookstores and there's a jeweler and there's um, shoes and clothes and Heinz has a big uh, dis- display selling tomato sauce and things like that. So it's uh, it's all things, you know, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. 
And then in the morning before the AGM, he and Bill Gates have a, a newspaper tossing competition. So one of the companies they own, or that he owns, builds demountable houses, you know, pre-built houses. Um, I guess money for trailer parks, but you can put them on your own block and things. And uh, it has they set one up with a porch, and then he and Bill Gates stand there and toss newspapers as close as they can to the door. So you can get up quite close to them and, and, and watch that. That's great. And they wander through the crowd and meet people. Uh, and then the AGM itself is just amazing. It's like the AGM business is about five minutes, but it goes all day. So it starts off with a movie that they never allow anyone to film or broadcast outside. And the one I saw was... Uh, they had Jamie Lee Curtis trying to entice Buffett and Munger into buying tech stocks because famously they've never bought tech stocks because they don't know how to value them. And, and the kind of punchline to it is uh, Jamie Lee rings up Warren and says, I, I think I've convinced Charlie to buy tech stocks. And then you see Charlie Munger, who's 95 years old, lying in bed with a big smile on his face. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the whole AGM's playful and full of, full of fun like that. And then after they show that, they open the floor up to questions and, and they have six or eight microphone stands around the building and uh, they just keep taking questions all day. And, it, and some of them are quite pointed. Uh, I know at the time Buffett was doing deals with a company called, I think it's called 3R, and they're a Brazilian buyout firm, and Buffett basically bankrolls them. So they do the the private equity deals, and they use Buffett's funding for it, and he gets a share of the company. And they just bought uh, out uh, Heinz, and there was like any other sort of leverage buyout group, they've just cut the costs out of Heinz. And so there's lots of pointed questions about about that. And you know, Buffett and Munger were quite upfront. Well, there must, you know, there must have been too much fat in the company, and you know, we'll see. We we back three R and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, pointed questions, lots of general questions. What do you think of the rise of China? What do you think of global warming? All those kinds of things. What do you think of the state of the market? Um, questions from people who have just graduated from college. How do I get a job at Berkshire Hathaway? And that was an interesting answer, and it's one that stuck with me. So Buffett said, uh, the thing we value most about our employees is they, they see things like they are. And that's, I think that's really good advice. To your own satisfaction. Don't, don't, get, don't yeah. get pushed around Well, that um, brings me to the next question, which is... don't understand it, say you don't understand it, and try and work out... I've heard you say out. this in the, what, the podcast, the truth that many here, companies are, are trying to sell you a story, but the true story is in yeah. the numbers, well, and that would speak to that point, really. Yeah, exactly. I, I have a little saying myself, which is if you want to buy a story, buy a book. <laughs> because, because uh, yeah. The other, the other one I've heard from one of the guests is if you want a guarantee, go and buy a fridge from Harvey Norman. Because yeah. <laughs> you're not going to get it on the market. You're not going to get one on the market. Yeah. But I think, I think a, lot of, a lot of people who are heads of companies are trying to sell you their stock. And so, of course, they're going to put all the positive spin they can on it like any other good salesperson would. Uh, but, but the numbers... The numbers can lie, but the numbers are harder to fudge than, than selling the good points of the story verbally. Uh, and I particularly focus on my analysis, and I won't get too detailed, mm. but on the first line of the, of the reporting um, statement, which is called Net Operating Cash Flow. And this is all available on the QAV it podcast is. website yeah. with yeah. much more detail and information yeah. and the spreadsheets available there. There yeah. are. Our checklist is available, the spreadsheets. Every week we go through and... and do an analysis of a company. Mm -hmm. But but just to finish up on that, net operating cash flow for a business basically means all the receipts coming in plus the cost, less the cost of collecting those receipts. And I always like to try and bring big finance, if you like, or complex finance down to things that we understand, like a house or like the local coffee shop. And so net operating cash flow for the local coffee shop is how much did it sell? 
these are all the receipts. That's how much did it cost to, to buy the beans and rent the premises and staff it. That's that's kind yep. of the basis of business. And then uh, then after that, gee, the accounting rules <laughs> become sort of the plaything of of uh, the people who set the accounting rules and the CFO. And so it's how much do you, are you going to set aside for depreciation and yeah, capital? Yeah. You know, the smoke and mirrors come into it. Yeah. There's, that becomes subjective, but the cash coming in less the cost of collecting, I think, is a really good thing to focus on. And that, and that you can find that uh, number very easily? Yeah, it's, it's always called net operating cash flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that includes the um, what's coming in and... The cost of collecting it. The cost of collecting it. Yeah. Okay. Cash flow has three three prongs, and this is always in the at the start of company reports. Net operating cash flow, finance cash flow, and investing cash flow. And finance and investing are around whether you're borrowing money or whether you're paying money, mm-hmm. whether you're buying a new digger for your mine or yep. whatever. So yep. that, that stuff is still important, but it's it's in the case of the mine, it's how much ore did they sell and what was the cost of digging it up mm. and selling it. So to me, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the basis of the success of the business, really. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Tony Kynaston. Tony is a multimillionaire professional investor. Thanks to the checklist system he's developed called QAV quality at value, the average return on his portfolio over the last 20 years has been nearly 20% per annum. That's twice the return of the ASX 200. Tony's knowledge and calm analysis takes the guesswork out of share market investing. And best of all, it removes the trauma. Fast track your investing knowledge. Use the coupon code SFB for a 20% discount on monthly or annual plans. That's at qavpodcast.com.au. This might be the best investment you'll ever make. That's qavpodcast.com.au and use the coupon code SFB for that 20% discount. When you, when you mentioned that, I, I like to look back at when I was running a business and I had a recording studio mm-hmm. and um, the way that I would work out exactly what the cash flow was because there'd be a certain number of hours I would be renting out to yeah. customers and then the cost of um, you know the rent for keeping the doors open and so forth. But I wouldn't include how much I was depreciating for the microphones and the mixing consoles and so forth. And that's a simple way. So you could look at any other business, Mm -hmm. like a simple business, Mm -hmm. and then you can actually look at a large multinational in exactly the same way. Yeah. No, you can. Now, of course, that's a very simple, quick and dirty analysis, and there are other things that we do. Because as you say, eventually the microphones in your recording studio will wear out and you'll have to replace them. Mm. Yeah. And so there's the, the more technical metric that people would use and that someone like Warren Buffett would use is called free cash flow. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to have to make some assumptions about, well, how long will it take for the microphones to wear out and how much is being put aside for that to happen and at what yeah. rate and all those kinds of things. And that it becomes a bit subjective there. But yeah, I mean, this and again, in this day and age on the internet, you can often get someone to tell you what the free cash flow is. Um, but until recently, I, I'd used net operating cash flow as a bit of a proxy for free cash flow. Okay, just to, if we can have a look at a, a broad overview of quality at value. Yeah, so uh, we use a checklist because I, tr- I, 
I found over the years that investing can be a, an emotional roller coaster if you let it be, but if you can write down the things that are important when making up your mind to buy or sell and then give them a score, that takes the emotion out of it and you can make a much more uh, dispassionate, logical decision based on that. So we have a checklist. It has, I think, about 18 items in it and they focus on items of quality and items of value. So the, that's why we call it the quality at value checklist. Mm-hmm. So the value would be uh, presumably the, the price you can buy it at? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So uh, things things that speak to value and and there are two ways of, I think of, there's probably a number of ways, but we focus on two ways of measuring value. One is what we call net tangible assets. So for your recording studio, if you own the studio, it would be the building. Um, if you didn't, it would be the equipment and, and any other assets that you could sell to raise cash. And then we say, well, what's that worth? And then we equate that to a price on the business and we see whether the price is higher or lower than what we want to pay for those assets. Mm-hmm. And all of investing, whether you're a value, growth, trend, whatever type of investor is about buying something cheaper than what you think it's worth. And that's, that's the basis of investing. And I, I think people kind of lose sight of that in, in these days because I guess like the rest of society, everything's so tribal. Oh, you're a value investor or you're a quality investor or you're a growth investor. To me, that's irrelevant. I'm trying to buy something today, which I think will be is cheaper than what it's worth either today or, or going forward into the business. So so we do, we do checklists on the quality side of things and that's around... Um, you know, how, how indebted it is, um, the operating cash flow. Uh, we look at things like whether the company has an owner-founder, for example. So you would probably know from your recording studio, if you were in the studio doing the recordings, things ran a lot better than if you hired someone to go in there uh, who clocked off at 5 o'clock, even though they, you know, they were maybe in, five, in the next five minutes the best song ever was going to be recorded, that kind of thing. So we look for, for owner and found, owners who are founders of the, of the business, um, there's a whole lot of other things we look at. On the value side, we're looking at things like the price-to-earnings ratio. Is it at a low point? Um, we're looking at uh, what we, the operating cash flow, and we, and we say instead of price-to-earnings ratio, we say price-to-operating cash flow ratio. So we're looking for companies which have lots of cash but are trading at a low price. So we have all these kinds of ratios and, and uh, things we look at. We look at the sentiment of the share price. We we found that when you're looking at things which are cheap, it, they could be cheap for a reason. And so oftentimes the share price is going down. Now, you could buy it at that stage, but you could wait a long time before the market realises that this is a good business trading at value. So we tend to watch the share price and look for upturns or whether it's going up. Because I heard in the podcast you're always looking for – that's one of the, the parts of the checklist is if the share price is going down, Correct. you don't buy. Correct. Yeah. And and that uh, – you know, that – I call that the insurance. It's, it's in the market. It's called not trying not to catch the falling knife. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very hard to catch something that's dropping at the time just before it rises. So you're better off again being factual and say, "Well, it's rising. <laughs> that's a fact. Now we can buy into it." Yeah, um, I, th- I yeah. see a lot of that um, in internet forums where people say, "Oh, is such and such a buy now? It's fallen so much." Right. Yeah. And that's the trap, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it could have fallen a lot, but still be in a general upward trend, which is okay. Sure, that's mm-hmm. a good time to buy it. And you look at things like, you know, some of the banks which have come off because of all their, their problems in the last 12 or 18 months. And I'm not saying they're good buys, but their trend has been generally upwards and now they're coming back. That's different to, say, Amaya, which, which we bought and sold during the year, where it's, it's in a general downtrend, but we thought it might have been turning up. As it turned out, it didn't. But, 
Yeah. So we're trying to we're trying to look for sentiment in the market to back up our decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's just one of the things we look at. Yeah. In yeah. our checklist. Yeah. So when you um when you moved from um, doing all those penny dreadfuls all those years ago, <laughs> <laughs> how long did it take you to get from that point to this finalised checklist? Good question. I mean, we I only had a formal checklist probably in the last five to seven years, mm-hmm. and that's because I read a book called The Checklist Manifesto, which came out. And it was basically written by a doctor, and he said, "Why do we make? Why are we making mistakes in surgeries?" And he said, "Well, is there an industry I can look at which doesn't make as many mistakes?" And and he thought the airline industry. And if you're a pilot on a plane, you have a checklist and you roll through it, and you don't take the, the plane doesn't take off unless everything ticks all the boxes. And he brought the surgeon brought that into his hospital, and that improved. Uh, outcomes outcomes yeah there was less less botched surgery procedures and so that's when i started doing the same thing with that with my investing and and i think it's helped a lot too but but the concepts underneath it i think were always there Mm. Um, and i've got to also say the checklist is evolving it's not it's not set in stone Um, i'm always sort of thinking to myself well yeah should i buy something on the way down is that better off than waiting for it to to trend up and you might miss the first 20 or 30 percent of that uptick one thing I, I would recommend to people is, is just read all the time about investing or about related things. So if I come across something else which strikes me as being a, a good way to invest, I might add that to the checklist. Let's talk about reporting season. Yeah. Reporting season's pretty important to you. It is. It's my busiest time of year. Yeah. yeah. What, to, to, what is reporting season? Yeah, to sure. Start with? So every company on the ASX, uh, within a month, I think they get... So we're talking about the end of their financial year, which is often June, but they have to do it twice a year, once at the half and once at the full year. So June and December, they get through all their books off and they get a month to do that. And then the following month, by the end of that following month, they have to report all their figures, their profit and loss statement. and Who do do they report to? To the ASX. Mm -hmm. And then, um, well, actually, they probably have to file it with ASIC, I would think. But all the information is available on the ASX website. Mm-hmm. And because I'm using numbers to drive my decisions on what to invest, I have to quickly go through and, and analyze as many companies as I can. So I run some screens and some filters over that process to, to do that quickly. But yeah, um, generally for me, investing is uh, maybe an hour a day uh, of my time. Mm-hmm. But during company reporting season, it, it can be for about two weeks of that, of that time, it's probably getting close to full time. In the podcast, I recall that you mentioned that first metric in your checklist actually disqualifies a lot of companies straight away. That's right. That was the price to operating cash flow one problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, we were talking about operating cash flow before. You'd, you'd be surprised how many companies on the ASX don't make a net operating cash flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I forget the number now, but something like a third of companies don't make any money on the ASX. Mm-hmm. There's another another large batch which are in their early days, so they're they're growing and they're they're re- they're hoping to get to a stage where they will make money, but they're not making it yet. And so you, you very you very quickly narrow things down to a focus on a, a group of companies which is manageable in terms of its size, and then the ones which have an attractive value to those shares. So the the operating cash flow uh, is is high and the price is low. Uh, it brings it down even smaller. So I can run a quick filter over companies and filter on that metric and uh, and come down to a list of maybe, I don't know, 100 to 150 stocks. Which is much more manageable. Which is much more manageable. And then I can do some, I can do the full checklist on, on those and go through those. And that makes sense. I mean, um, the market's going to, going to 
work out you know good companies that are trading at a low price you've just got to get in there quickly and do it and we and we do that and we hope the market will because we bought in ahead of the people working it out so we're hoping that someone eventually will say hey look at this company it's trading at a, a it's a good quality company it's trading at a, a cheap price let's buy it and so uh, it gets back up to what it should be worth which which is basically my business <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to beat that sort of mass appreciation of value Can you give us an example of a situation like that where you've sort of looked at a share and you thought, okay, this is undervalued and how long it took and then who took interest in it that put a rocket under the price? I can give you lots of different examples. So what we sometimes find is that we buy into a share and soon after that um, it gets taken over. So Villa World, for example, is a share. It's a property developer in, in Queensland and we bought it. Uh, I, forget, I don't know the numbers involved, but we bought it. And then just a month or two later, someone lobbed in with an offer uh, above our share price uh, because they saw the same attractive qualities we did um, in the company and, mm. and thought it was cheap and worth taking over. So that's happened to us now three or four times this year. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if I look at a big company like, like Qantas, for example, which um, I think was it's a good quality company, you know, without even doing the numbers, you know. I mean, when I say quality, I'm not saying, uh, am I buying a Rolls-Royce? I'm saying, am I buying a company which I know will be there operating year after year going forward? Like, it's got enough qu- cash flow coming in. It's not too indebted, all those kinds of things which make me feel comfortable it'll be there in the future. So you take a company like Qantas, and it's had a turbulent history, and it, it gets affected by oil prices and all those kinds of things. So there's always a question mark about its profitability. But I thought it was in a sweet spot when we bought it. And gradually, over the last two or three years, it's, it's gained some acceptance amongst the fund management community and the price has been, been bought up. So, you know, I bought it for around $3 and it's now around $7. And that's taken probably three or four years. So that's, that's kind of a more, a more realistic uh, way that things normally pan out. And, of course, you can buy something and it goes down and you sell it, so <laughs> there's always that. And it's important to, to, as they say, pull the weeds and let the flowers grow, so that's a, a part of portfolio management. Being a value investor often makes you a contrarian. And so, say, three or four years ago, no one was touching gold stocks. It was tr- gold, the physical asset, was trading at a low point in its price, and, and I kept being knocked out by how cheap all these good quality gold companies were going for and we and I started buying them and you know three or four years later they're they're much more profitable than they were because the gold price has risen and people are piling into the, the shares so being being a value investor often makes you a contrary investor as well so you're not um, buying and selling shares on a daily basis no. um, but you're holding for the long term when you say you you're culling the weeds you're, mm-hmm. you're weeding out the bad ones and keeping the good ones mm-hmm. how how long do you keep a good one for yeah, well, I've, like, like I said, I've got, uh, I don't know what percentage, but maybe half of the portfolio I've held for at least three or four years. Um, so, I mean, things do go in cycles. So uh, quadras won't always be in the portfolio for the rest of my life. Could be, that'd be great. But yeah. I'll probably sell it at some stage and invest in something else that's a low point in its cycle. And again, that's that's what that's what the numbers tell you. It's, it's taking the passion out of that. It's a dispassionate type of investing. So you, you'll be running your methodology through... Current yes. shareholdings, yeah, that's right, uh, on and a regular basis to yeah. make sure that they're still qualified to be in there. Well, by qualify, a lot of the shareholdings that we've had, that I've had for a long period of time, 
are no longer buys, according to my checklist. But they're not sells either. So yeah. there's no point selling Qantas because it's going up and it doesn't meet my value criteria anymore. I want to hold it while it goes up. So that's when I use the, the, that sentiment test of looking at the, the short-term trend versus the long-term trend. And if, if, if Qantas ever started to trend down too much, I'd probably sell it and put the money back into something which met the checklist yep. yeah, for value. You referred previously to people putting names to the styles of investing, yeah. and you're talking about value investing, mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of fund managers who are considered to be value investors mm-hmm. who have underperformed for a long time. Mm-hmm. People saying value's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like, that's right. That's, that, I find that interesting because uh, that, that's kind of the feel the market had leading up to the, the dot-com boom in the dot-com crash, where you had even people like Warren Buffett being criticised for underperforming the market. And he kept throwing his hands up and saying, I just can't value these stocks that people are, are paying so much money for. You know, roll, roll forward one or two years and suddenly he was a hero because he came through the dot-com boom unscathed. I think we'll see that same thing play out, maybe not in the same way, but I'm not going to go out, I, I, I'm not a fan of going out and Overpaying or paying a high multiple for something that's not making money, mm-hmm. and there are, that seems to be flavour of the month now. If, if you're a, a company which is growing very fast, uh, and people can see that you've got the chance of overseas expansion, or maybe you are expanding overseas, and maybe they're using the product every day, then they kind of go tick. Um, but they don't stop and say, "What's that worth?" <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they do. I'm, I'm probably being harsh on them, but I can't say what it's worth because <clears throat> that's crystal ball gazing, in, in my opinion. If I have to project out and say, well, I'll pick a stock, and I'm not, and, and I should also say, none of the stocks I mention here are recommendations for people to buy or no, sell. No, of course not. Nothing's a recommendation. No, yeah. and, but also, too, the timing's different. So when, when I was talking about Qantas, I bought it years ago. I'm not saying people should go out and buy it now, yeah. nor am I saying they should sell it, and I'm not selling it. But let's pick a stock. Let's say Afterpay. So that's sort of been a um, very successful stock, and it, and you know, good luck to them, and I hope it becomes a successful business for them globally. In working out what it's worth in the future, because it's worth nothing now, because it's it's not making any money. So you're taking a punt on it on it on it becoming so big it dominates the market, and then they can they can basically push their margins up and start to make money. That's that's kind of the classic play in this high growth space. Uh, how, how do you value it? It's it's a lot of, in my opinion, it's a fair bit of crystal ball gazing. How do you know that a big competitor won't come along and offer the same product that they're offering? Uh, how do you know that they won't offer it for a lower margin than what they charge retailers? How do you know that they won't get into regulatory strife? There's, there's question mark, question mark, question mark. Now, if if you're an insider in the payments industry, maybe you can fill out fill out those question marks and come up with a value. But I find it really hard to do. And I find it subjective and and that leads me away from being a fact-based investor. Mm. So do you only invest on the ASX? I do, yeah. yeah. I, no I, interest in international markets? I once owned shares in Berkshire Hathaway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and went along to their AGM. In, in honour of? In honour of, <laughs> Oh, yes. so, you could only, so you could go to the well, AGM. Well, yeah. actually, back in, the, back in the days when the Australian dollar was par- had parity with the US, uh, I, I, could, I could buy a dollar's worth of Berkshire Hathaway shares for a dollar of Australian dollars, and it, that kind of made it a bit more attractive. And, and I held it for three or four years, and, and part of the profit was the fact the Australian dollar dropped, and, mm-hmm. and therefore I made 30% for doing nothing, apart from the fact that Berkshire Hathaway went up. 
but there are all sorts of things to take into account when investing overseas, and one of them is currency risk. Um, then there's different tax regimes, there's different um, reporting regimes. So I had to sign off on the WBEN, whatever it was, 80 form. Yeah, there's a particular form you really have to, it's, and it's yeah. quite uh, strenuous, isn't it? <laughs> well, if you wanted to go through and read it all, yeah, I think it's like 30 pages or something. I mean, That's to invest in the, on the um, New York Stock Exchange, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so there are all those things. And, and I also think uh, for, for Berkshire Hathaway, I also had to do it through... An intermediary. I think it, I can't remember the right term now, but there was someone in the New York who acted as my custodian mm. because I couldn't directly invest in the shares. Yeah, in the yeah. so yeah. it becomes becomes a little bit more complicated. I'm not saying don't do it, but but for me, I like investing on the ASX. I like it because I've done it for a long time. I know it. I know that most of the people, like you know, Jerry Harvey gets up every year and talks about Harvey Norman, and the CEO of Qantas has been there for a long time, and I know what he's like. Uh, I know the rhythm of things, so I know when the reporting season is going to be. Uh, if I wonder, you know, if I'm going to invest in Mark and go into the stores and see what they're, how they're doing and all that kind of stuff. So I like, as Peter Lynch said, um, in, investing in what you know. Do you go to many AGMs? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I, I often debate with myself whether I should vote more in those AGMs, and I, I very rarely do unless it's a very contentious issue. Uh, look, I don't think my share. A couple of times I've appeared as a top ten shareholder on some companies' list, and I've thought about going along to their to their meetings. But I'm really a passive investor. Um, I, I I have worked in corporate, and the thought of going on a board and, and managing a company again is is interesting. But it it would take up so much time; it would detract, I think, from my. Golf my, handicap. My golf handicap and my other investing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and as well, you start to play that sort of insider's game too, don't you? Mm, like, yeah. Mm. I, I like to be a bit objective. Okay, Tony. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, good. Thanks, Phil. And, and good luck to your podcast. It's a great idea. I think the reason, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is to give back and, and try and demystify things for individuals. Because I, I, you know, from personal experience, I have family members who are just ripped off blind by fees in various funds and things. So I think it's great that, that you're out there as well trying to get people to understand this, this part of their lives. Yeah, well, I didn't realise that was what I'd be doing when I started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you just do realise how the, the whole industry has been so mystified for so yeah. long. And really, it's just to have all these hands in your pockets, you know, and you don't yeah. even know that they're going, you know, That's right. taking out a dollar here and a dollar there. And, uh, yeah, this is what we're trying to protect against. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Good. Well, good luck to you. Thanks. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 